Good morning and welcome. What a blessed Lord's Day morning it is. Um, just one announcement, actually two announcements before we begin. One is that um, the 11th and 12th grade class will meet today um, for their regular, in their regular classroom. Um, and this is the last day of catechism and Sunday school. So um, we need to keep that in our prayers also. Also, um, if you have a hearing aid, the loop system is supposed to be working now. So um, give that a try if you, if you know how to do that. And uh, if you have any troubles with it, then uh, let us know. Let me or, or Marv or somebody know. The Lord has gathered us. And the only way we can honor Him, we can worship Him the way we should, is by His empowering grace. So let's pray for that. Let's ask Him to set apart from us anything that's unworthy of this time and, and to enable us to focus on Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time that we can set aside the labors that normally consume us, that we can set aside all of the common things of life, and that we can hear the word of our God and respond with hearts overflowing with gratitude. Empower us and enable us, Lord, that through us you might be glorified, And that through you and your work, we might be equipped well to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let's stand together. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. God is indeed our refuge. So congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from Trinity Psalter Hymnal 46, Selection A. 46, Selection A.
speaking to us from the words of His law. God declares, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water beneath or that is in, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Jesus summarized this law by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But we won't. The law humbles us because it it sets this high and holy standard of absolute devotion to God. And we won't, we don't, of ourselves. In fact, we have fallen short daily. And only God, through His Son Jesus Christ, can forgive us our sins, can, can atone for our failures... And only He can empower us to repent and to live a life of renewed devotion out of gratitude. So we need to confess to Him our need. We do that this morning, singing hymn 390 from our Psalter hymnal, 390, which is a confession of our need but also our reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit.
In Galatians 4, the apostle tells us that when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What amazingly good news that is. Not because of anything we have done or earned or attained, but God, by his mercy, sends his his spirit into us so that we might be united to his son and reconciled to him. All of him, not at all of us. And that means that when we turn back to that law, we do so not to earn, not to attain, but to show our thanks. We need to ask for his help in doing exactly that. Um, In addition, as we come to the Lord in prayer, a few updates. Um, It was noted in the uh, prayer email yesterday that Larry Hawkins was admitted to the hospital Friday evening. Due to low hemoglobin levels, they uh, believe that there might be internal bleeding. Um, so they're doing some testing to see if the cause can be determined. Um, some of that testing is happening today. So uh, please pray for uh, wisdom regarding the cause of, of his condition and um, comfort, patience. It's hard, for, it's hard for us to wait and to uh, long for answers. So, um, and then Linda Smith has been experiencing some post-operative complications that have caused some concern and and a bit of time in the emergency room last week. Um, So pray for wisdom and insight in the coming days as she undergoes some further testing. Um, Bruce Smith is scheduled to undergo a CAT scan Wednesday to see how effective the chemotherapy has been in treating his cancer. Um, So pray for, uh, for good results and encouragement there. Um, Dan Van Enns, his new chemo and immunotherapy uh, has been going okay, but the mornings have been really hard. So just pray for, for patience and strength there. Um, Joel Mulder has resumed taking his chemo treatments due to the continued growth of his cancer. So pray for, uh, for those treatments to make some headway there. And then um, on a, a positive note, Jamie Elzinga, her surgery went well on Tuesday and, uh, and we're thankful for that. And then a follow-up uh, brain MRI showed no signs of cancer, which is an answer to much prayer. So we should uh, praise the Lord for that. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, when we hear the words of your law, when we hear that call to love you, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbor even as we love ourselves. Father, we hang our heads in shame because we know that we've not. We know that far too often, though we knew the right thing that we should do, we've declined to do it. And though we knew that the thing that we were about to do, we shouldn't, we did it anyway. Lord, we don't deserve 
to have fellowship with you. We don't deserve to have peace with you. And yet you, in your abundance of mercy, sent your son to die in order to pay for our sin, even while we were still your enemies. Send him as a manifestation of your love, even when we still hated you. And you continue to love us and draw us near and even to transform us. Father, we are overwhelmed with gratitude for your goodness. We are filled with thankfulness. And we pray, Father, that you would so work within us that our lives might increasingly be a demonstration of thankfulness to you. Cause us day by day to recognize anew how graciously we've been treated and to resolve to live in a way that shows that we belong to you, that we have become your sons and daughters through Jesus and that we long long to show you our thanks in all that we do. Father, we have had many needs in our midst. Many who are dealing with cancer and other ailments of the body, it reminds us powerfully that we live in a fallen world. It makes us long for that time when your Son returns and makes all things new. But until then, Lord, we lift up before you those who are struggling, and we ask that you would provide the wisdom to address the concerns that they're dealing with, the patience and the comfort that they need in the midst of much uncertainty, healing for their bodies according to your perfect will and design, and a growth in their faith, that as they see the the weakness of man and the weakness of the body, they might be reminded that you are always strong and that you are always with us. Father, we pray for Larry as he undergoes some testing and and just deals with a lot of uncertainty and waiting. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen him. We pray for Linda and for Bruce, as Bruce is about to undergo some uh, renewed testing to see where his cancer is, and and as Linda is undergoing testing uh, to determine the cause of some new symptoms. We pray that you would, would bless them with comfort and with reminders of your good care. We pray for Dan as he's been struggling in the mornings and and just being brought low by this new treatment. We pray that you would uh, bless both him and Kathy with encouragement. We pray for Joel as he's been uh, back on his chemotherapy regimen and and as uh, the news of his testing has not been good, we pray that you would comfort him and Maggie. And and Lord, we we thank you for the, the good news that Jamie has received and for the Uh, the blessing of the surgery going well. We know that she's still dealing with the side effects of of chemotherapy. We pray that you would strengthen and bless her in that and uh, and enable uh, David to encourage her. But Lord, we thank you too for the good news. And we think of others in our midst. Uh, Bob, who's uh, awaiting results concerning his chemotherapy and, and radiation. We think of uh, Keith, who's been dealing with dizziness and headaches and, 
Uh, Norm still recovering from his surgeries and, and others, Lord, dealing with persistent pain and struggles. Father, at times it overwhelms us. But it reminds us too that we can't do life. Even the healthiest and strongest among us is powerless unless we have your power at work within us. So teach us, Lord, to encourage and build one another up. Reminding each other that our strength is found not in our self-determination, not in our pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but it's in you. Trusting you, resting in you, receiving the grace that you alone provide. Father, today we have our final catechism and Sunday school classes. We're so thankful for the opportunity that we and our children have had to learn and to grow. We pray that this last session would be an encouragement for the children and that all of the lessons that we've learned over the past year, you would plant deep within our hearts like seeds sown in rich soil that bring forth plants and produce 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And we pray that you would make our youth eager to continue learning about you and your ways and your works, that they might become stronger in the faith and more committed to you than we have ever been, and that the next generation might rise up and call you blessed. Father, we thank you for your church. We are weak and in the eyes of the world much to be scorned. But you have called us your children, your kingdom, a temple built of living stones, a priestly people, a holy nation. Thank you for the privilege of being your people. Continue to mature and strengthen and grow us, we pray, through your word, through your spirit, through the fellowship of the saints, that more and more we might bear your image into the world, exercising dominion unto your glory. Father, we pray for this land in which we live. Thank you for the freedoms we've been given, for the opportunities that we have to gather together and to confess you openly. Lord, this land has has entered a hard time. There is so much division. There is so much unbelief. There are so many seeking to lead people astray. Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of many to know you. That you would equip your church with great power and insight and love. That your people might reach out to those who are recognizing the misery of their sin. That you would use us even in our imperfections, even in our own struggles and weakness, to show them that there is a better way, that there is hope and help and strength and life for those who trust in Christ. And so use us as instruments in your hand. And we pray that you would bless the leaders of this land, that they might learn to bow the knee before you, that they might recognize that they are merely instruments in your hand, meant to punish the evildoer and protect those who do well and prepare the way for your kingdom to grow and spread. 
Father, we pray that you would bless your church in every place where it worships this day. May your word go forth with great power and effectiveness. May your people be refreshed and strengthened. And most of all, may your glory be exalted among your people. Father, we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's Word again from um, Exodus, let's stand and sing. We're going to sing number 32 in our Psalter hymnal. This is a rendering of Psalm 20. And it reminds us that in times of struggle and of need, it is God alone who can meet our needs. It is God alone who is the cry of our heart. It is God alone who provides our deliverance. So we're going to sing 32 stanzas 1 and then 3, 4, and 5. I encourage you to turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. And we're going to look especially at verses 7 through 12. We'll read beginning at the start of this chapter so that we can see the full context. Now, last time we recognized... In chapter 2, well, we saw a lot of that chapter was devoted to Moses. His birth, his preservation, his education, his being sent out into exile, as it were, fleeing from the wrath of Pharaoh, and, and how he established a family in Midian with the wife of Jethro or Ruel, a Midianite priest. And, uh, but then at the end of that chapter, we saw that Israel 
crying out in their slavery, sought the help of God, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. People of God beloved in Christ, our God thinks and works differently than men do. Scripture shows us that truth time and again. Deeds that men regard with indifference, God judges with holy indignation. While events that cause men to rant and protest, barely cause God to blink. Men see injustice or oppression, they prepare an attack, they ready their weapons. But God confronts that same injustice in ways that seem in the eyes of men to be weak. Our God works differently than we do. And He wants us to have no doubt that His works are not the works of mere men. And so it is as we approach Israel's deliverance from the oppressive tyranny of Egypt. Seeing the injustice of Israel's treatment, hearing their cries for mercy, most men would rally an army. They would gather the mightiest force they could muster. They would seek weaponry that was cutting edge and that was greater than the weaponry wielded by Egypt. Allies would be sought to increase their effectiveness, to increase the likelihood of their victory. But God is not a man. God's ways are not the ways of men. He gathers not an army, but one man. He seeks not someone 
that the people regard as a natural leader, a man around whom they are already inclined to rally. No, he seeks an outcast. Not a man of great power who speaks well and causes the hearts of men to rally. No, no, no. He picks a man who's 80 years old, whom Israel has already rejected, who has spent the last four decades with sheep in the wilderness. God works differently than we do. But God is greater than we are. His wisdom, His power, His ways are greater than ours. And His plan never fails. That's what we see in this passage before us as God declares His intention to deliver Israel from its misery. That's our theme. God here is declaring His intention to deliver Israel from its misery. But as we consider how He does that, we need to recognize that God is working in a way that is dramatically different from the way that we would probably work. And that as He does that, it becomes exceedingly evident that He's doing it. That what comes to pass, it's not the power of Moses. It's not the wisdom of Aaron. It's not the insight of Israel. No, it is God who is delivering His people from oppression. And that begins as He shows His intention to restore His people to a place of blessing, which is what we see in verses 7 and 8. Recall what's brought us to this point. Moses has been in exile. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace, but he never forgot that he was an Israelite. He longed to see his people set free from their misery, cherishing the hope quietly that God would use him. That's what got him in trouble. He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he had had enough. Looking around, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian, hid his body in the sand, and hoped no one would notice. But someone did. And very soon it became plain that what he had done was known to many among the Israelites. He became scared. In part, because there's a cost to acting on one's own. There's a cost to acting outside the law, and he knew it, but also in part because the Israelites didn't embrace him as their deliverer. They didn't embrace him as their hope. They rejected him. They scorned him. They still saw him as an Egyptian prince. But now the Israelites saw him, or the, now the Egyptians saw him as a Hebrew, as one who was not one of their own. He was a man without a people, and so he fled into exile, ending up in Midian, where he became the son-in-law of a Midianite priest, watching over the sheep out in the wilderness. And that's where we come to the, the start of our text. Moses is on the western edge of Midianite territory in a place called the Sinai Peninsula. There he sees a bush burning, although strictly speaking the bush is not burning. There's fire, but the bush itself is not being consumed. Moses 
obviously is intrigued by this. He goes to find out what's going on, and there is where God speaks to Moses, identifying himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, prompting Moses to hide his face in terror. And the first thing that God declares to Moses is that he knows Israel's misery. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Israel's plight has not escaped God's notice. He hasn't turned a blind eye to them. In fact, he says, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. When God's people cry out to him, when they pray in the midst of their affliction, God always hears. He says, I know their sufferings. What a comfort for us, huh? Sometimes you feel deeply alone. You don't have any idea what the future holds. You can't see the way out. But God knows your sufferings. God hears your prayer. God is with us, even when we can't see Him, when we can't perceive Him. And God has resolved that He will deliver His people. At the start of verse 8, He says, I have come down. Stop there a minute. Roll that around in your mind. God hears their prayer, hears their misery, their groaning, and He says, I have come down. It's like a father hearing that his child has been bullied on the playground persistently. And and the child has gone to the playground monitor and nothing has changed. So the child went to the teacher and nothing changed. So the child went to the principle and nothing changed and so he says now I have come down I'm gonna fix it only this father is infinitely greater than our earthly fathers there is no one who is greater than him no one whom he is not able to bring into line with his purposes he says I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians The verb there literally describes snatching something away. He's going to grab his people and remove them from the midst of their oppression. And I'm going to bring them up out of that land. The time for his people to grieve and groan in the midst of the misery of their slavery is about to end. No more will they endure under Pharaoh's cruelty. No more will they bake Egypt's bricks and build their cities. God will remove them from that place and He will take them to a far better place. Having delivered them from the oppression of the Egyptians, He will deliver them to a good and broad land. Now when God says something is good, it's good. It's really good and broad. The Egyptians feared the Israelites, because they were so numerous, because God had blessed them with so many children. So God is bringing them to a a place that is broad, that is, is plenty big enough to house them all. He says of this land that it is flowing with milk and honey. Now milk, of course, is a blessing given to those who cultivate livestock. A blessing known where men build their farms, they care for their cattle, But honey, honey's a blessing that a land knows whether it's cultivated or not, whether it's cared for or not. God's saying that this is a place that has been cared for and developed and built up, but also a place that naturally 
is filled with blessings. In fact, it flows with milk and honey. It's abundant in its richness. God has a far greater plan in mind for them than simply to soothe their groaning. To pat them on the head and say it'll be okay. No, he's going to remove them from their misery and give them a place of goodness. Right now, the place is possessed by others. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites. But these are wicked and rebellious people. People whose sin has caused them to be a stench in the nostrils of our God. And so he's going to not only give their land to the Israelites, but he's going to use the Israelites as his hand of vengeance, his hand of justice against these who have rejected him. Now I want to pause there a minute. Why has God caused these words of Moses to be preserved? I mean, obviously it's important that we see for the history of God's people... It's important that we see that he delivered them out of the hand of Egypt into Canaan, Palestine. And clearly it's important in order to see the character and the power of God that we see the way that he did that. But why does he tell us, why does he preserve for us these words that he spoke to Moses about how he saw, he heard, he's going to deliver, telling Moses in advance what he's going to do? What's the purpose of preserving that dialogue? That's a good question for us to ask the text when we're not quite sure what's the application here. I think there are a couple of reasons that he does that. The first is that this is a reminder of who our God is. As he speaks to Moses, we are reminded that this God whom we serve is mighty Egypt was one of the leading world powers of its age. And God's telling Moses, God's telling us, they're no match for me. I come down and deliver my people, delivered they will be. Our God is far mightier than anything we might encounter in this world. He also is good. He doesn't ignore the plight of his people. He doesn't turn a blind eye to their suffering or a deaf ear to their cries. He is good. He gives them what they need. And He is faithful. God promised Abraham that He would give him and his offspring after him the land in which he dwelt. He promised Jacob that he would deliver his people out of the hand of, or out of the land of Egypt where they were briefly settling. And our God is faithful to fulfill His promises. So by these words he speaks to Moses, we're reminded that God is mighty, that he is good, that he is faithful. Just as he was then, so he is now. And more than that, we need to remember that Israel is not just an ancient people to whom we have no connection. On the contrary, ancient Israel was a living image of the church today. They were were trapped in a land that was not their own. Just... As we, although we live in a place that we love since it's the only place we've ever known, we long for a place that's better, don't we? We groan as we experience the sorrow, the sinfulness, the disease, 
the separation, the death, the anxiety that fills this world. We prosper here just as Israel prospered in Egypt, but we long for something far better. We long for that land that has been promised to us, the new heavens and the new earth. Israel cried out in the midst of their misery. And so do we cry out when we're persecuted by those who hate God, when we're grieved by our sin which we can't seem to shake, when we're entrapped by this broken world and its suffering. Israel, God promised He would deliver from the place that caused their groaning, and so He has promised us. At just the right time, in just the right way, in a manner that will reveal His might and His goodness and His faithfulness. He will deliver us from this place of groaning. This is a promise spoken not just to Israel of old, this ancient people in a distant land. It's spoken to us to comfort us when we groan, when we weep, when we cry out with longing for something better. But then the Lord backs up and essentially repeats what he said in verse 7. In verse 9, Now behold, he says, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Why does he repeat what he just said? Well, God wants Moses to recognize that he said these things, and then said that he was going to deliver his people. Now he's saying it again, because he's about to say how it's happening. And he doesn't want Moses to get a mistaken idea. Because what he's about to say is the way that he is going to deliver. The way that he is going to fulfill his promise. And that's our second point. He's intending to rescue his people. But to do it by the hand of his servant. The cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen their oppression. And he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Note well what he's saying there. He commands Moses to go to Egypt, not as a man traveling on his own, not going with the intention either of resuming his old life or of remaining anonymous. Moses will go to Egypt as God's representative in order to bring Israel out. He will be the one to apply God's covenant promises. He will be the one to plunder Egypt of all its slaves. This is not an insignificant command. Moses is being sent out of the wilderness into a land that oppresses the people of God. He's not a volunteer. God is commanding him to do it. He's not a visitor. He's an ambassador sent to speak and to act on God's behalf. And that means that Moses can go with confidence. After all, this isn't his idea. This isn't his plan. He's being sent for the purpose that God sends him with the authority that God gives him to accomplish the task that God intends to do. An amazing responsibility, but also an amazing privilege. Because it is God who will work through him. But again, we need to ask why. What what is God teaching us in telling us how he commissions Moses to go? 
First and foremost, I, I see here a lesson about God resolving to use man. Resolving to use a believer. Despite his exile from among the people of God, Moses was one of God's people. He's listed in Hebrews 11 among the great heroes of the faith. Even though he could have enjoyed luxury and power as an Egyptian, he chose to be identified with, chose even to be exiled, because he wanted to be identified as one of the people of God, one of the covenant people. That's not to say he was perfect. Regardless of his motives, Moses murdered a man. Later in Exodus, we learn that pride and anger sometimes got the best of him. Moses was sinful and imperfect, just like us. And yet God chose to use this sinful, imperfect man in an amazing way. God would use Moses to speak his words to Pharaoh. God would use Moses to perform miracles expressing the power of God. The Lord would use Moses to deliver his people out of their slavery. And in like manner, God chooses to use men today. Like Moses, every one of them is sinful and imperfect and weak. But in a variety of ways, God chooses to use us as his hands, as his mouth. Some of us, he uses to teach children the words and the ways of God himself. Some of us, he uses to impress the word of God upon unbelievers whom he sets before us. Some of us, he uses to show the compassion of God himself to those who are hurting. Some are used to express God's power to restrain evil in a world that is filled with it. This commissioning of Moses ought to, ask each, or ought to lead each one of us to ask, how might God call me? Or how has God called me? Our elders have been given the calling from God to exercise His authority in teaching the Word of God to His people, in encouraging the people of God with His promises in commanding the people of God to believe and to live in accord with who God is. That's weighty. Not something any one of them should or could take up on their own, but God lays that upon them. Our deacons have been given the calling from God Himself to to be stewards of the gifts that God has led His people to give. But not just of money, their talents, their time, their abilities. Our deacons are called to lead them in using those powerfully. Again, not something that a man should ever take up on his own, but something that God commissions them to do. You parents, you have been entrusted with the high and holy calling of raising up new disciples of the Lord to know and love and serve Him in the midst of a world that denies and rejects Him. A calling that should make us tremble. And so many other callings. The calling to evangelize. The calling to simply weep with those who weep and love those who are lonely. The calling to serve, hurting people who are set before us. 
God chooses to use us, weak individuals though we are, in a way that reveals Him, reveals His character, reveals His power. God does not choose those who are mighty and wise in the eyes of the world. He chooses not the fastest or the brightest or the smartest. He chooses us. Men and women who are weak. So that when people are built up or educated or blessed or delivered or encouraged, it's clear that it wasn't from us. It was God who did that. It was His power they received, His blessing they obtained. And a second lesson in these verses, in fact, I think the larger lesson, verse 10 has Moses standing there as a living image of our Redeemer. Because you see, the true need of God's people was never simply physical deliverance from their slavery. Enslavement to men isn't what causes true misery, but enslavement to sin within. Pharaoh was not the real enemy of Israel. He was just an image of sin, an image of Satan, an image of the unbelieving world. It was to free Israel, to free the church, to free us from sin that Jesus was sent. Like Moses, he was not in the eyes of the world great. Like Moses, he came as a man. But God would use that man to deliver every generation of his people from sin and from Satan and from the imprisoning gates of hell. God called Moses to rescue Israel in order to fulfill his promise that he would be our God and that we should be his people. And that is a promise that we can trust. But unlike Jesus, Moses was not at first confident in his calling. I think we can understand that. I mean, oftentimes we are not confident of the calling that God lays upon us. We think, not me, you got the wrong guy. I'm not up to that task. I'm not, I'm not like these other people you've called. No, you need to rethink that. But God doesn't call the deeply impressive people, and he certainly doesn't call the people who think they've got it all together. I think it's fair to say that our elders, our deacons, and our minister, their most frequent prayer is that God would equip them for the task to which they've been called, which they don't feel equipped to do. And so we see Moses' question in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, when we read that question by Moses, we sympathize with it. But even as we sympathize, we need to see that our sympathy reveals something of our weakness. Because this was not a question that arose from faith. Moses asks that question thinking that God called him to serve according to his own abilities. That God wanted him to speak according to Moses' wisdom. That God wanted him to deliver according to Moses' strength and strategy. But that's not at all the case. But God doesn't rebuke Moses, does he? He understands that Moses is weak. 
So instead of rebuking him, God reassures his servant with a promise of success. And that's the last point we see here. God reassures his servant with a promise of success. That reassurance comes, first of all, with a reminder of what Moses' role is. Verse 12, God said, I will be with you. Isn't that beautiful? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice the pronoun there, I. He said, but I will be with you. You're not going alone. You're not doing the job. I will be with you. I will speak through you. I will work on your behalf. It was God who would deliver Israel. Moses was just a tool in his hand. And then God promises Moses a sign that will attest to the truth of the fact that God is the one who sent him, that God is the one who would use him. But notice what that sign is. i got to admit, I read this passage I don't know how many times through the years. Until the first time I actually preached on this text, I didn't realize the significance of this sign. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I got to imagine that Moses' first thought was, thanks. Because normally when we think of a sign, we think of something that brings reassurance so that we can do the job. Right? God, if you could just give me a sign, then I'll know and I can go do it. God gives him a sign, but it's an after-the-fact sign. After it's all happened, after you've done the job I've called you to do, after it's all successful, then you're going to worship God on this mountain with the people of God and you'll know that I sent you. Do you see the power of what God's doing here? He's not saying, as Gideon demanded of God, you know, lay out a sheepskin here and I'm going to make everything else wet and leave it dry. Then you'll know. No, that's a sign of weakness. God says, believe me, trust me, go and act in the confidence that I am doing what I said I would do. And then after, afterward, after it's all done, after it's all finished, you'll see the evidence. Not an easy calling to receive. Because it demands faith in that which we cannot yet see. We much prefer to have the evidence beforehand. Yet it's the calling God gives which Moses must receive by faith. And beloved, in this exchange between Moses and the Lord, we see a far greater struggle that Christ had to endure for us. Christ was filled with faith. He was absolutely confident. And yet even he recognizing his own weakness, recognizing the weightiness of that which had to be done in order to deliver the people of God, even he cried out, in a sense, who am I? Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. See, Jesus 
unlike Moses, Jesus knew all of the trials, all of the hardship, all of the pain and suffering and hurt that wait for him, waited for him. He longed for God's people to be delivered in some other way, by some other one. But out of faith, out of confidence in his heavenly Father, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And God answered. He sent an angel to strengthen Jesus so that he would have the power, so that he would have the ability to endure. And he sent reminders through the promises of Scripture that this is what you must do, that you're the only one who is to do it, and that at the end you will see with joy the people of God whom you have delivered. And because Jesus responded to God's calling with faith, with trust that God would accomplish what he had commanded. Our price has been paid in full. Our freedom has been obtained. We have been brought from death unto life. And so now God gives the instruction to us to imitate the faith of Jesus. Because God will call you. If you're trusting in Christ, if you are one of God's people, God will call you at various times and ways... To serve Him in ways that you are convinced you can't do. He will. He does that. Perhaps it will come in the form of a request to teach Sunday school. And you think, I can't teach. Perhaps it will come in the form of a nomination to serve as an elder or a deacon. Perhaps, Perhaps to care for a special needs child. Or to raise up a child who's just difficult. Perhaps to counsel those who are at the end of themselves at a crisis pregnancy center. Perhaps to be a foster parent. Perhaps to testify to your faith before someone who's deeply skeptical and argumentative. Whatever the calling, you will face that calling with the absolute confidence that you can't do it. That you're not up to the task. That you're way too weak, way too foolish. And you will wonder what God was thinking in setting that calling before you, but you'll know that it came from Him. You'll you'll be convinced because He'll work in your conscience. And your calling, though you'll want to say what Moses did, who am I? Your calling is to repeat the prayer of Jesus. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And as he did to Moses, as we'll see in the coming weeks, so he will do for you. He will equip you. He will give you the words. He will give you the strength. He will bless your feeble efforts. And God's people will be blessed, perhaps even delivered through God using you. Brothers and sisters, our God is trustworthy. 
To Moses long ago, he declared his intention to deliver Israel from its misery, and he did. He restored his people to a place of blessing. He rescued them by, his hand, by the hand of his servant Moses. And he did more than that. He did all that that signified, delivering us from a far deeper misery by the servant who is greater than Moses. And therefore, we can trust him and we must submit to his call. And as we do, we can be absolutely assured that he will use us to bless his people in the work that he gives us to do, but only, only as we're trusting in him. To God be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are not sufficient for the tasks that we often find before ourselves. We don't have the wisdom, the strength, the perseverance that we know the tasks demand. But we also know that you have the power to equip us and the ability to use us in our weakness to express your almighty strength. Grant us, therefore, the faith to answer your call, to heed your commands, and to serve as instruments in your hand. And, Father, may you use this, your people, to bring glory unto your holy name, For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let us confess together our confidence in the Lord, our trust in Him to use even us as He has ordained. As we sing together number 219, My heart is fixed, O God. Number 219 stands a 1 and then 4 through 7.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have persistently provided for us according to our need. Receive now the worship of our tithes and our gifts as a token of our thanks. And Lord, teach us to be confident in you that you will always give us what we stand in need of. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is Trinity Psalter Hymnal 485, number 485, Like a River Glorious.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.